Hi, this is Namo Acton. I'm an artist. I work with emerging tech to probe and understand the human condition and the nature of nature. And I'm on Edge of AI, the podcast that's emerging to be the natural best choice for learning about AI. Hello, AI podcast passengers. Jump on in. Here's what's to come on today's journey. Find out about the many seasons of AI's development through the eyes of a very unique artist and scholar, and the potential value of staring at waves and trees for hours on end. Find out how to get the most of AI by imagining it's a rubber duck. All this and more, take your seat. Welcome aboard the Edge of AI podcast. Snap into your safety belt and prepare to explore the depths of the rapidly expanding AI universe. Each episode is a dispatch featuring hyper-relevant reports from the pilots, pioneers, and passengers aboard the AI rocket ship. We explore the latest use cases and developments in AI, hear from experts building tech, and learn how this disruptive force is transforming industries and society. Welcome aboard. I'm Ron Levy, your captain for today's voyage to the edge of AI. Just like most of you, I've embraced the spirit of exploration and entrepreneurship throughout my life, from starting my own business before graduating high school to traversing the world's most challenging terrains. I've always sought out new frontiers and adventures. I built one of the largest award-winning custom home companies in Los Angeles, and most recently, I've navigated complex regulations while founding and leading a public company that is dedicated to applying technology and training. Buckle up and get ready. Let's tackle uncharted territories in AI today with curiosity as our guiding star. So today's guest is Memo Acton. Memo has been featured major publications like Wired, The Guardian, Financial Times. His list of collaborators include, and listen to this list, Lenny Kravitz, U2, Depeche Mode, Professor Richard Dawkins, Google, Apple, Twitter, Deutsche Bank, and Sony PlayStation. He's a multidisciplinary artist, musician, and researcher originating from Istanbul, Turkey. For more than a decade, his work has been exploring AI or artificial intelligence, big data, and our collective consciousness as scraped by the internet. Thematically, he's fascinated with intelligence in nature and machines and integrates the study of hard sciences as well as religion and ritual into his artistic practice. In 2021, he earned a PhD from Goldsmiths University in London, specializing in creative applications of deep neural networks with meaningful human control. And in this field, he is considered one of the world's leading pioneers. He is currently assistant professor of computational art at University of California, San Diego. Acton received the pre-Ars Electronica Goldenica. While it's a mouthful, it is one of the most prestigious awards in New Media Art. And that was for his work, Forms, in 2013. His work has been featured internationally at a number of prestigious venues and exhibitions, including the Royal Opera House in London, Ars Electronica, and the Grand Palais of Paris's Artists and Robots exhibition in 2018. He has built, advised, and consulted on projects that integrate art and technology. He currently resides in LA, California. And trust me, this is going to be an amazing podcast. The gentleman you're about to hear from and learn about is like none other. He's just fantastic. So, Memo, let's start about your history as an artist and with AI. What first attracted you to AI and what prompted you as an artist to pursue a PhD involving AI? Well, first of all, thank you for that very generous introduction, Ron. It's great to be here and chat about these topics. So how did I get into AI? AI is a very, very broad topic and there's a few channels. Obviously, as a kid, I was very much into the AI that we knew from sci-fi. I was a massive Arthur C. Clarke fan, Isaac Asimov fan. So mostly through books as that was as a kid. But then later, there's another kind of AI, which is the kind of AI that we're actually using, the real world technology of AI, um, which is very different to the, to the robots that we get in sci-fi. And I got interested in that a couple of decades ago, probably in the early 2000s, because as an artist, I was very interested in emerging technologies and basically software computers, that that was my medium. 
And I was really interested in creating interactive systems, so computers that could somehow understand what their human users wanted to do. And I wanted to build what I call instruments, analogous to a piano or a guitar, but not necessarily musical instruments, but visual instruments. So I was writing software that could understand what was happening in the world. I mean, understand is a big word, so I'll put that in, in inverted commas here. I was working a lot with computer vision, so cameras attached to computers, trying to understand, microphones attached to computers, sensors, trying to make sense of the world. And this is what AI does. AI is the discipline which is trying to imbue upon computers an understanding of what's happening in the world. And I was been doing this. On one hand, I was an artist wearing my artist hat. On another hand, I was a researcher, computer scientist wearing that hat. Round about 2014, I was quite into machine learning which is the kind of flavor of AI that we have that's very dominant today. And in around about 2014, I thought, this is going to be big. I don't want to just be hacking at this. I want to really understand this really, really bottom up. So I decided to do a PhD. And I embarked on that PhD in 2014. I was already very deep in my artistic career. So I didn't do a PhD for career purposes. It was just personal curiosity. That's why, I mean, from my point of view, it's just such a rare combination to have someone that is that expert in tech and also at his core is an absolute true artist and combine that with a curiosity about nature and the world, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of times that will come back in something that was, I'll use the term mystical for lack of a better one right now, but you bring it all to ground level. And I think that's what we're going to find out here. It's just proven to me it's to be absolutely fascinating. And even though we realize this is a podcast, I think it still might be useful to screen share. Let's review some of your work as we get going. They're really beautiful and somewhat mysterious as well, but perhaps you can show us a few things and explain them. We can describe them for the listeners and folks can also review this on YouTube when they get a chance. That's a really good summary. I share my screen, go really technical, but also ultimately I'm an artist. I'm interested in creating artworks and I'm interested in the whole spectrum from mystical to technical because ultimately I'm interested in the human condition and this is the human condition. We are both very technical, but also very romantic and mystical beings. That's what I found so unique about you is that very often if you separate types of people in today's world and some of them are very technical and it's got to make sense and I've got to be able to see it, touch it and understand it. And the others are very much generalists, right? Usually they don't cross over. And the way you've done that, being expert, a ridiculous expert level on both, to me, it's just amazing. I mean, I just feel fortunate to spend this time with you and be able to share it with all our listeners. Oh, well, that's very kind of you, Ron. So I've just shared my screen. Hopefully you can see it. Yeah, we've got it. And what we're looking at is a series of images, which I guess represent much of uh, Memo's art. I'm just showing my website, which is a bunch of thumbnails. I made this in 2008, and I'll just play this video. I'll turn the sound down. So this is one of the audio works, and it's basically a large interactive digital virtual paint wall. So there's people walking up to this wall, and through their movements, they're splashing colors, you know, all colors of the rainbow virtually, and painting this wall with their, with their body. And this is one of the early works that I made in 2008. This wouldn't really be called machine learning, but it's using computer vision. So here there's, there's sensors which are tracking the movement of the dancers, of the audience rather. This is the audience interacting here. So I'm watching individuals in front of the wall, and as big as the screen is, you see this wall that is basically having paint splashed all over it. But what's dictating the paint splash is the movement. So you've got people that are dancing in front of it. Meanwhile, the wall's changing as they do, tied to the movements. And the fact that this is... 14, 15 years old? Yeah, 2008. So 15 years old. I mean, the technology that I'm using in this work goes decades back. In fact, a lot of the technologies in AI today, the roots obviously go, go quite back. But this was some of my earlier work that was trying to use you know, computer vision. And then if I jump forward, I'll show this one called Pattern Recognition. This is from 2016. I'll play this video. This is a dance piece. So you'll see on screen two dancers and robotic spotlights. And here, the robotic spotlights are also controlled by software. Pardon my interruption. You really see a dark stage that would be black all around, except for the dancers themselves. In this case, looks like a couple of dancers on stage. 
But then there are all these spotlights, these spotlights programmed to the dancers, I guess, real life. We don't have your normal lighting person in the back of the audience that's controlling these things. Exactly. That's exactly right. There is no light programming. They look like laser beams and they're responding in real time. So this isn't pre-programmed. There's an AI system that is watching the dancers' movements and it's controlling the lights in a way such that the lights are actually parts. They're also performers in this case. So this is a duet. There's two dancers, but we also consider the light beams as performers because they are responding in real time to what the dancers are doing. So this was 2016. Also, again, my explorations into AI. Well, what's interesting is they're responding to what the dancers are doing, not doing exactly what they are doing. They're actually interacting on their own. Yeah, exactly. We train the lights on pairings of dancers. So we wanted the lights to feel like they have some kind of intelligence, some kind of response beyond just mimicking. So that was 2016. And I'll show one more project. This is from 2017, Learning to See. This is perhaps my more popular work. It went quite viral. I'll show these images first. So these images, basically there's a table and on the table, there's a bunch of wires and rags and cloth, things like that. And there's a camera looking down and then you can see a video feed. There's a live video feed of the camera, what the camera is seeing, the, the wires and cables. And then next to it, you see the same scene reconstructed. In this case, it's reconstructed in the form of a galaxy or, or a nebula. I'll play the video now. I'll turn down the sound. So this one, you know, the camera's looking down on some cloth of some sort, maybe a towel or blanket or something on a tabletop, and then someone just moving them around. That's on the left side. That's all what the camera's catching. On the right side, I'm looking at waves coming in on the beach, and those waves mirror the movements of these towels on the other screen. It's amazing. So here I have two motivations. One motivation is, so this is me playing with the cloth. On the left, you see my hands playing with some cloth and some cables. And on the right, you see waves, ocean waves in the same shape as the cloth. And this is me kind of looking at a new form of filmmaking, a new form of puppetry, a new form of visual expression. I wanted to be a filmmaker as a kid, actually, but I had no means to make films growing up in Turkey. So this has always been a very important thing for me. How can I make tools that allow people who might not have access to certain equipment to still tell stories, to make films, to make animations and things like that? As we're watching in the camera, you took a charger with a plug-in that goes into the wall and placed it in the middle of those towels and you end up with a rock that the waves are breaking against. It's just absolutely amazing. And this is all real time. So this is happening live. So this is what I call digital puppetry. And um, this was 2017. This is using now pretty much the same kind of technologies that we use today in AI. So it's deep neural networks that's powering this particular work. Yeah. And now he's picking up that charger and it looks like he's picking up fire on the other screen. It's all flamed and fired. It looks like his hand's on fire. So now I'm playing with cables and on the right, we see flowers. And I made this an interactive installation that the public could play with. And it's really amazing to see how people do. It's like crafting. People play with the cables on the cloth to craft their perfect bouquet, or they bend the wires in such a way as to create a beautiful nebula. So to me, this is what I would call an instrument. It's a visual instrument to create a form of self-expression. So I'll stop sharing there. Fantastic. For those of you that are able to see it on the YouTube feed, you'll be really impressed and it starts making you understand these different theories that Memo has studied and how they're coming together and why, quite honestly. Pretty impressive. So let's talk about your work, Distributed Consciousness. It's a multifaceted artwork spanning many things, biology, distributed computation, distributed cognition, climate change, activism, and animal minds. Give us a little more on sort of what it is and what it means to you. Yeah, so distributed consciousness is one of my most recent works. I made it in 2021, and it is quite a complex work in that it brings together lots of themes. So I've been in AI for many decades, and I've seen the waves of popularity in the mainstream. And I realized around about 2015, 2016 is when AI seemed to me to burst into the mainstream first. I mean, now there's a second wave of bursting into the mainstream, 
But even if you look at the Google news trends, like the actual graph or the term AI, it explodes in 2015. There's a baseline. And then in 2015, there's lots of articles about AI. And then in 2016, all of a sudden, I noticed lots of articles and even books about cephalopods, octopuses. And I thought this was really interesting. I'm not the only one to interpret this, but I think it's because cephalopods are already such an alien intelligence. The way their nervous system is is so different to mammals or even birds or even reptiles. They have most of their neurons in their arms and each arm is semi-autonomous. You can cut the arm of an octopus and it can live for a few hours and it'll go and hunt and it'll find food and taste the food and pass the food up the arms to a mouth that isn't there. And the arms can even coordinate with each other without involving the central brain. And now as we're building AI, having to think about what other intelligences might be like. And octopuses are a really great example because they're super intelligent. They can solve problems. Octopuses are really fascinating example of a kind of other intelligence that we already share the planet with. So octopuses symbolize this other super intelligence. On top of that, around about 2021, obviously blockchain exploded, NFTs exploded. And I was thinking a lot about distributed computation, which is what blockchains like Ethereum and Tezos provide. Um, Instead of a single central server, every node on the network runs the full code and it's distributed in that sense. I've been thinking about the parallels between blockchains, but also biology, multi-celled organisms. Every cell in my body has a copy of my DNA. They specialize, but in a way, every cell is a fully functioning intelligence machine. And also, again, linking in octopuses, as they take this even beyond, their cognition is completely distributed. And the AIs that we're building... There's many different types of AI that one could build. The ones that we're building right now are based on big data. It's based on scraping the internet for knowledge and then building systems around that. And when we interact with something like GPT today, like ChatGPT, what we're really interacting with is the knowledge, the collective knowledge that's been accumulated over centuries, over millennia, and archived on the internet but now it's being reorganized and we're building new ways to access that knowledge. So I can talk about this more in detail shortly, but I just wanted to pause there and say, these are some of the themes that were behind this work. And just to quickly summarize, it started out as an NFT collection, distributed consciousness, and then it's now an installation. I currently have a big installation in Australia. And yeah, it's a very multifaceted work in that sense. I do want to, take another step from what you just discussed, because yeah, I heard you discuss this before, and I think it's very, very relevant. What you were stating was, I will paraphrase it and I'll let you elaborate on it. We've always seen ourselves as the wisest, smartest, most advanced beings. And you kind of mentioned biblical times, et cetera. And that what's going on with AI now, and the frightening thing for a lot of people is what if it becomes more wise, more smart, right? Can you You had a whole conversation on that that was fascinating. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. It's what I refer to as the final decentering of human exceptionalism. And I'm really fascinated by this lineage of, particularly in the Western culture, which comes from the Abrahamic religions, particularly, you know, it's in the opening page of the Bible, the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, that man dominates nature and that the world is here for man to dominate And then throughout history, the history of science, we see Galileo and Copernicus claim that the world is not at the center of the universe. And this is traumatic for many people to realize that their world, our world, is not the center of the universe. And Kant calls this a Copernican trauma. It's a complete change in worldview. Later, we relive this with Darwin, with Origin of Species. And he says, not only are we not the essential of the universe, but even as a species, we're not that special. We just evolved from apes. We share this same, he didn't know about DNA at the time, but we just evolved. We're all living beings come from the same place, which again was another Copernican trauma. It was another epistemological shift. And I think now we face another trauma, trauma for some, I personally embrace this, but the idea that people now know that we're not the only solar system, we're not the only planet, we evolved from apes, etc. But we are special, we are intelligent, 
we have a soul. And now as we deal with building AI that can potentially be creative, it can potentially do things that we thought that only humans could do. This is traumatic for a lot of people. I personally embrace this, that side of it. There's a lot that I am concerned about with AI, but the idea that we are not special, that our intelligence, our creativity, even our consciousness could maybe be modeled by a computer. I find this um, an exhilarating thought. It's concepts like this that go back to your artistry with the tech background as well. And the fact that you have been part of and studying AI for, as you said, decades, right? You're only watching what you would call the second sort of mass market wave. I think of this as the first one, by the way, but your history in it is deeper and, and longer. And what you said makes a lot of sense. So it's probably the second mass market wave. And I think the third and fourth will be even much longer. And maybe you know what those are. I certainly do not. But having reference points like you just described, I think are really important to put a frame around this thing that very feels very uncontrolled. So regarding the second wave, I should first also mention, having studied the history of AI, this is probably already the sixth wave. Since the 50s, there have been many of these cycles where a lot is promised, there's huge amounts of funding, and then it fails to deliver what it promised. And then funding dries up. And you know these are called AI winters and AI summers quite famously. Started in the 50s, happened in the 60s, again in the 70s, again in the 80s. So it happens every decade. So this is probably the eighth cycle now. But I do think that the cycles that are going to come are going to be very different. Maybe I'm digressing now. But a lot of the research that's been happening in AI, particularly as an artist, I'm looking at the creative aspect of what's happening with AI. If we think of generative AI, things like mid-journey, stable diffusion, DALI, chat, GPT, etc. A lot of these tools, they're fundamental research. They come out of research companies who are doing fundamental research, trying to solve research questions. They're not tools that are being developed by companies who are trying to build user-facing products that are designed to solve industry problems. That's not where these tools come from. These are just fundamental research. And now that this research is showing so much promise, like DALI, which was the first one, um, DALI one, I think it was January 2020 when it first came out, blew everyone away. It blew me away, it blew everyone away. But OpenAI's goal isn't to make text-to-image tools. Their, their goal is to build AGI, artificial general intelligence. And to build AGI, they need to build systems that can understand the world. And that means if they see something from a camera, we humans want to be able to ask them questions about what they see, and they need to be able to respond. So they need to have a very good understanding of what is in that picture. So this is why they developed a technology called Clip. And off the back of that, they developed DALI. But the whole generative image revolution that's happening right now wasn't the intent. Now that that's happening, now companies like Adobe is obviously investing a lot in this, but also tons of startups. So I think the next few years is really when we're going to see the, the major disruption in the creative industries with regards to AI. There's so much capital chasing AI and not having any idea where to go or what to do. And it's this foundational understanding I think is going to be critical for them to have. And what you said was it's gone from fundamental research, which is primarily developed all of the retail products with AI as they exist now, came out of fundamental research. And then you transition into tools, someone saying, wait, I'm going to use that as a foundation. I'm going to develop this one tool that does this one thing, and they're going to develop that. And man, to be at that moment in time feels so incredibly powerful. It is. It's very exciting. I mean, I've been, this is why I got into AI as a small plug. I am consulting for a startup right now. That is one of these companies that is designing tools for filmmakers. It's called Ozu. I think it's an alpha right now, ozu.ai. And it's being built with the needs of filmmakers and the way things work in the real world. What are the needs of a producer, a director, film editor? with those needs in mind. And once these tools start hitting the markets, then we'll see the real change in how films get made, animations get made, music gets made. As we're recording this, there is a pretty big Hollywood strike going on at the moment. I feel in AI, is, I don't know this for a fact, I believe it's at the center of a lot of the discussions they're having, trying to pull it all back together. I really hope 
I mean, I'd love them to be, to be talking to you because you're multiple chess moves ahead of that. It's like the things you might be arguing about now, maybe you need to be a couple moves ahead because here's where it's going. And the way the snowball is going down the hill is just going very, very fast. And you will have to contend with those things immediately. Do you have any comments about sort of Hollywood and what's going on there in regards to the AI influence? This is a very important point that you bring up. So thanks again for bringing this up. So I'm an artist. I'm a creator first and foremost. So I'm only interested in creating tools that help me with my workflow to do things that I want to be able to do that I can't do. I should also say, as I touched upon growing up in Turkey, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to do things. So for me, there is a side of AI tools that are very, very democratizing that today, just one person and a computer can maybe make a film. Uh, We already have that with music, like in a way, things like Ableton Live did that. It allowed somebody in their bedroom to become a, a music star. I still miss the big mixing board that was 12, 15 feet long and had countless channels. But you're right, they're outdated. But we still have that. There is opportunity here to democratize uh, creation, the act of creation. Now, on the flip side, I do want to talk about the issues that are being raised with regards to shift of labor and particularly exploitation. It's shocking to me how much, even when generative AI first exploded, uh, like not first exploded, but in the last few years with stable diffusion, this, that, the other. And obviously these are models like Midjourney, stable diffusion that are trained on the work of millions of artists scraped from the internet without their consent. And now, famously, you can type in Midjourney, I want a painting of a dragon in the cell of Greg Rutkowski, a well-known fancy illustrator. And there is a lot to debate about here. That I have a lot to say about this. One thing is, I find it so shocking how identically almost it mirrors the Luddite movement in the early 1800s. Um, now, I don't know if the word Luddite is common in the US, Start from basics here. Educate me. Okay. So in the UK, the word Luddite is quite a common word. It's a derogatory term used against people who are anti-technology. So if people say if they're anti-technology, they're called Luddites. And this word comes from a movement that happened in the early 1800s with the invention of things like the Jacquard loom, which was an automated weaving machine which was actually seen as the precursor of computers, actually. And when these looms were invented, it basically cut the work of all the people who were using the previous older looms, and they were out of work, and they protest, and they were called Luddites. And actually, we got quite violent. They protest, they would even attack factories that would buy these new looms, and then set fire to them and the government would come and just kill them and shoot them. It got really, really violent. But the interesting thing is this, what the Luddites were complaining was that the added value that these machines were bringing was going to the factory owners and not the factory workers. And that what was happening was these were skilled artisans, the people who used the previous generation looms, they were skilled artisans and they were being replaced by unskilled laborers. And In a way, this is what's happening with AI as well now. If, for example, what had happened was the value that was being generated by these new improved machines was shared with the workers, then there might not have been this revolt. So what we need to do, I, as an artist, this is first and foremost for me, I don't want to automate myself out of a job. I don't think that's really the goal. And the startup that I'm consulting for isn't trying to do that. It's trying to make things easier and more enjoyable and more creative for creators. So there's a big discussion to be had here, but the discussion to have is really around how businesses operate and how businesses integrate these technologies and how they manage their workforce. Which is ever-changing was the word I was going to say, but it's even more than that. It's a lot's happening right now because of all this. It's going to be really interesting to watch it roll out. You just contributed a recent publication titled Art and the Science of Generative AI, A Deeper Dive. And you're exploring AI's impact on creative processes and potential implications for art, culture, and society. Tell us how you became involved on this particular publication and some of the key takeaways. And I think you've primed us for that with some of what we've already talked about. Exactly. I mean, this is a perfect connection to that because this paper is exactly talking about these issues Uh, So there's two papers, actually. One is 
art and the science of generative AI a deeper dive, as you mentioned, with that's an archive. There's the website archive.org. So that's freely accessible. And that's a long paper. That's many, many pages. And then we wrote a much shorter version for the journal Science. And so, which is quite a major journal. And in that journal, we have a summary, which is a much shorter version. And it's quite a big group of authors. I think there's like 10, 15 of us. I was contacted by the lead author, Ziv Epstein, who's a PhD student at MIT. And he wanted to do this review paper. It's basically examining exactly this question that you asked. We have this generative AI. How is it going to disrupt both positive and negative society, ethics, law, the way we understand ownership, IP, legal issues, culture, aesthetics, all of these things. And that's why it's such a big team of authors, because I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't speculate on how it affects law or IP. But we had IP lawyers. We had people from Harvard or various other places who specialize in IP law. And so they contribute that aspect of it. My contribution was around aesthetics and arts and culture relating to that. Well, dovetails a little bit into term I got from you, which is amazing, which is the nature of nature, right? And then when you look at some generative AI, who owns the IP? Is it the idea that went into the AI that helped the bot utilize it? Or maybe I create something and someone takes that and morphs it? Like at what stage? And I think the nature of nature is kind of reflective in this that we have to deal with now. I don't expect you to have the answers. Nobody does. But these are the big questions that are going to be coming at us very quickly. Exactly. I was quite surprised because obviously we sat around and had these big author writing meetings. I was quite surprised to see that these top lawyers and law scholars not have a definitive answer to this. And they're citing precedents and different cases. But ultimately, it seems there really isn't a very clear answer right now. But I do urge people to go and read the paper, the version on archive, that's arxiv.org, which is where a lot of machine learning AI papers are published for free. You can read it freely and it goes in, in depth about any concerns people have around the legal concepts of ownership. One thing I will say from a very speculative point of view, which isn't in the paper because the paper is more rigorous and it doesn't go into speculation. We didn't speculate in the paper, but I'm going to speculate now that the concept of ownership just needs to change with what's happening. Even going back to distributed consciousness, when you create something with, say, Midjourney, it's a collaboration with everybody in the world, particularly with Midjourney, because Midjourney is on Discord. So it's this public chat room. You can just go to the chat room, see what people are creating, and you can branch off. And no one's really the author. It's everyone's the author. And I think the concepts of authorship is going to change. So that's my speculation. The change rolls in. For those of us that come from the blockchain world, which I always felt like if you, if you didn't get it when you were much younger, it took a while to understand it. I used to say that you've got to forget everything you ever knew to truly understand it. And it's the decentralized world versus the centralized world, right? A lot of people may think that are not as familiar, they may think, well, if someone can't own it, then you're not going to have an incentive to develop it, right? Because we're used to these big entities and big conglomerations is pouring a bunch of resources and developing things, by the way, great things. So certainly not dissing any of that, but that's sort of the thought process behind how we've grown in the past. What you just described is a decentralization. So everybody's doing it and they can carve out their return of value, however they want to define that, right? But you have to make that mental transition to say, wait a minute, this decentralization really is something and it's worth having grow. I wouldn't say switch to, but I would say really grow and develop. Actually, that's a very, very interesting point you touch upon. I do think this new model of creation, it's not even necessarily new because creation has always been a shared thing. You know, we in ancient times or even now in many cultures, there's storytelling cultures, vocal cultures, stories pass from generation to generation, they evolve and then they morph along the way. None of this is really new, but it's been computationalized. And oddly, I do think, well, I cannot even oddly, interestingly, I think blockchain could capture this. I don't think blockchain apps have been developed to that extent, but you can imagine a system where every action that someone does is somehow tokenized. So I do something and then someone branches off that, 
that is tokenized. At the end of the chain, something is created, but we have a full record of every contribution from everybody along that chain. It could even be thousands of people who contributed to the creation of this image, say, and they don't even know they contributed. I just upload an image. Someone takes that image, takes my prompt, modifies it, creates a new image. I don't even know they took it, but it's recorded on the blockchain. There is this full chain of transactions. So oddly, that kind of really advanced Web3, if the whole internet was truly decentralized at its core, then it could support this new kind of authorship. And you get the benefit of crypto because there can be micropayments and those payments could be as small as a penny or even smaller than that. And so you can attribute the value and it's all smart contracts, which hopefully I'm not speaking Greek to some of the people out there, but it's all scripted in. You choose to do something on that blockchain with that and it's connected to a wallet of sorts. The wallet will probably look different than they do today, but it's connected to a wallet and these payments just come in. So people do end up incentivized and they end up rewarded and they end up maybe not owning the whole of something, but they get some value from the contribution that they made. And man, that is the power of decentralization, which we've got to get our arms around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have friends who are building actually systems like that. And in fact, a good friend of mine, Tim Exile, is building a music platform, Endless. The idea is that someone uploads a drum track, someone else takes that and remixes it, someone has a bass line, someone puts that in a phrase, and like 50 things down the line, make, someone makes a track and sells it, then it's just fully smart contracts all the way down, everybody who contributed all the way to the person who uploaded the original drum track, which got remixed, which got blah, 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 get their micropayments. And there's nobody that could account them out of that, right? And it's all real time. They get paid instantly. And think about all that middle ground it eliminates. And that's why they call it the trust machine. Let's talk about a little bit about AI writing code, because I think we just kind of segued into this anyway. So AI does help you write code. So a lot of what we've just talked about, talk to me about sort of what's next there. How does it work and where do you think it's going? Yeah. So, I mean, I write software. That's my medium as an artist and as a researcher. So I program, I write code, and there are plugins that are based on the same technology as ChatGPT that do code completion. And, you know, we've always had code completion, but it's like you're writing maybe a function. There's a function called print. You write PR and it suggests print. But now code completion using AI is just insanely next level. It's blowing my mind. I just write a comment. I just say, I want this. Okay, this next function is going to load this file from there, do this, reference that, do that, blah, blah, blah. And it just writes a page of code that does that. And it even knows to reference the correct variable names and the correct function names that I have in other source files. So it is blowing my mind, I'll be honest. An interesting thing is many people say writing code will become obsolete. And I think that's a very tricky thing to say. They say writing code will be obsolete. Instead, we'll just talk to computers. And arguably, as someone who's been writing software since the 80s, I started programming at the age of 10. And so I've been through many, many different programming languages. One of the programming languages I learned early on was assembly and machine code. And when you're writing in assembly, you're speaking in the machine's language. That is the machine's language. You're shifting registers. You're saying, put this bit there, shift that, push this, pop that. That's really the machine's language. All of the programming languages that we think of as programming languages, maybe some of you will have heard Python or JavaScript or even C or Smalltalk or Objective-C. These are high level. They're higher. I mean, some are higher than others. C is quite a low level language, but none of them are really machine code. So they're all already a layer above machine code. So to switch to natural language, as an interface is not that big of a step. But like the programming language Python, which is very popular today, is already practically English. I'm sure I could give a non-computer programmer a Python code and they can read it. And it's basically, if this happens, then that. So I think we will move to working with natural language, which will mean everybody, including non-programmers, will be able to effectively kind of program but we will always need people who understand the machine code. It's like, we will always need car mechanics. I don't need to understand how the engine of a car works. I can drive it because people have designed this interface with a steering wheel and a pedals and nowadays cruise control and autonomous, et cetera. But there's going to need to be mechanics. 
So maybe one day mechanics will be robots. I don't know. But you don't see that in the next five years? Not in the next five years. I do see programming via natural language like English being completely normal so that everybody can program using English. But I don't see lower level programming being obsolete in five years. I actually am glad to hear that. I think the touch points at this point are very important because things are just moving very fast and we've got the sort of traditional world and the regulatory world and we've got a lot of things to catch up with to be able to direct this. I should very quickly also say, so the history of AI goes back to many centuries, but even with the term AI, it was coined in 1955. So since the 50s, there is this pattern of overpromising like and huge, really, really smart people, people like Marvin Minsky, who is a professor of AI at MIT, really, really smart people saying, yeah, within five years, we'll have AI doing the dishes. They were saying in the, in the 60s, or within five years, we'll have this. Jeff Hinton, a very, very famous current AI researcher, pioneer from the 80s. He was at Google for many, many years. I think it was in 2014, he famously said, by next year, we won't need radiologists. Elon Musk's been promising full self-driving cars within the end of the year since, I think, 2013, 2014. But there's a thing called the tail problem, which is it's relatively doable to get 99% of a job doable with AI. And people get excited. They think, oh, if we solve 90% in two years, maybe we can solve the next 10% in six months. It turns out the final 1% can take decades, even though the first 99% took just a few years. So saying something will be obsolete is a very bold statement. So with your comments about that and the future, which is really a great perspective, you've got a unique experience in this subject that when I say unique, I might mean it literally, but if not, you're almost unique. But if you sort of predicted 2023, is what's happening today what you expected? And then maybe what are you surprised by that did happen? I can say this, throughout my journey, there's always been this idea in many people's minds that quote unquote creative jobs will never be automated. It will be laborers who will be automated first. I never bought that. The real world is difficult. Building robots is difficult. Building general purpose robots is really difficult. Creative jobs, or what's thought of as creative jobs, are going to be very quickly automated. And by this, I'm referring to, it pains me to say this, but all the creative sectors, people who write, people who do video editing, people who do book layout design, illustration, 3D animation, scripts for films, music, because a lot of this is formulaic. It feels creative, but especially when you look at what's happening in the mainstream, it's so formulaic that I have been expecting these creative sectors to be automated. I should also create a small digression that I don't think a lot of these works are even that creative, but creativity is something independent from what we associate with creative sectors. Being a lawyer, a lawyer can be very creative. A doctor can be creative. Physicists, scientists have to be very creative to come up with theories. So creativity has got nothing to do with art, really. Art can be very formulaic. So I have been expecting a lot of disruption in the creative sectors. Some of it hasn't come as soon as I was expecting it. Like I was expecting a lot more disruption in writing and design but it's happening now, but I was expecting it sooner. I was not expecting the level of quality of the image synthesis that, say, MidJourney is able to do. That happened very, very quickly. And that really started with a technology that was born in 2017 called Transformers, which is an architecture for neural networks. That really changed things and sped things up with regards to how large models we can build and how much information we can store in a neural network. And that's also why things like ChatGPT, like that progress happened very quickly. And that was Transformers. All of a sudden, the models just grew. We kind of needed this last decade, right? I'll just use the term server farms. Before they existed, this is a lot of data they're all born from, right? I mean, we had to have that infrastructure for this to work. Exactly. And that's actually no coincidence. The fact that 
the flavor of AI that we have, because there's many different types of AI that one could have. And throughout the history of AI, there's always been conflicts between the big egos that were promoting different kinds of AI. For example, another kind of AI is based on reasoning and symbolic reasoning. And it might not even need a lot of data. You just give it some problems to solve and it uses reasoning to solve those problems. That's not the kind of AI that we're building or that we have been building for the last 20 years. The kind of AI that we've been building is called, they're using artificial neural networks, but in particular, they're called deep neural networks. And they're called deep because they're massive. And they're massive because they're designed to deal with big data. And that's the version of AI that we have because that's what's being invested in, because that's what's needed. Because for the last, since the birth of the internet, we've been accumulating data and the Googles, the Facebook, the NSAs, the GCHQs, they have so much data, they don't know what to do with this data. No human can read this data. So they need algorithms to parse that data and make sense of it, which is why we have this form of AI, which is a very specific type of AI. And yeah, so it is no accident. It's That's why this AI follows the decade of big data. Here's what I'm hoping, and I think it already exists, based on what you said earlier. You said doctors and lawyers can be creatives. I'm not going to go against that because I actually believe it's absolutely true. But if rules dictate everything they do, they cannot be. And I'm only picking out doctors and lawyers because that's what was brought up, cast it anywhere. But it was rules, rules, rules. We used to operate a lot more on principles. So we had less rules and more principles. And for me, there was parts of our society that were much better because of that. And as we go into this level of computerization, it makes me wonder, can we get back to principles for people to think things through instead of just looking at a rule book and say yes and no? Because sometimes, even though it follows a rule, it's not necessarily right to do, right? So those are some of the things that came to mind as you're talking about that and some of the changes. So you said something before also, and I just found it fantastic. So I'm going to repeat it as best as I can anyway. The internet was the first step in cataloging information. Search engines were the next step in searching that information. And GPT was the first step in organizing information and retrieving that information. Talk about a fun foundational concept to understand what's going on. I find that just to be, in its simplicity, brilliant. I think this is a really big thing. I mean, of course, it goes way back writing on stone tablets was maybe the first step in externalizing our memory. And so this idea of externalizing cognitive processes goes back many, many tens of thousands of years. In the digital age, let's say the internet was a huge thing in terms of collecting information and archiving it. I remember the early days of going on the internet and there were no search engines. You just had to know an FTP address and you would FTP you would have to FTP, enter the FTP address of what you wanted to FTP to. You could look at the files, the directory, et cetera. So search engines were we were needed, but now we're beyond those kind of search engines. And what we have with things like GPT, they're a kind of search and synthesis engine. So they don't just retrieve it. They don't retrieve the stored data. They kind of retrieve the knowledge because they're able to synthesize They're also able to very famously hallucinate, which is a bit of a problem right now. It's an open problem in the research, which means they just make stuff up. But an example I'll give, like I use ChatGPT daily to find answers to questions, which I can't find any other way. Like this is an actual example saying, what was that film where there was that woman who wanted to kill her husband, but because her husband cheated on her and you describe it in a way that Google wouldn't be able to return a result, but ChatGPT can. Or I did this with a book where I said, what was that book where it talks about this particular thing that happened? And ChatGPT says, it was it this book? I'm like, no, no, it wasn't that book because it wasn't about that. I don't remember what it was about, but it had this thing. And so oh, maybe it was, in this particular case, the book Chaos by um, James uh, Glegg. And then I could go to that book and search and, oh yeah, it is that. So what's happening is it's basically a way of me accessing the information. But also I have conversations with biologists and physicists on via ChatGPT, like not real physicists, but if there's a topic that I don't really fully understand, 
and reading the Wikipedia entry or watching a YouTube tutorial doesn't really help me. I have questions. I need to ask someone. I ask ChatGPT and it might make stuff up. I know this. But so what I'm able to do is I'm able to ask it questions and it gives me answers and then I can verify those answers. Then I can under, then I can understand the Wikipedia entry because without that conversation with ChatGPT, I can't even understand the Wikipedia entry. But after the conversation, then I can make sense of it. And it is critical that you verify because a lot of you may have may have heard this about a month ago in court. Some attorneys submitted a brief and the judge ended up sanctioning that because as it turned out, they just went to chat GPT to write it and it cited cases that were imaginary. They didn't even exist. So when the judge asked them, what are these cases? They don't exist. They confess. They use chat GPT and he sanctioned them because of it. If you don't want mud on your face, make sure you double check everything. Absolutely. I mean, you have to verify the current generation of technologies, they make stuff up. So you have to verify. But I don't think this is a problem that cannot be fixed. With the current generation of technologies, it's difficult to fix. But I mean, it would be naive to say that in five years, we won't have something like ChatGPT that is able to not make stuff up. Like we, we will. And like right now, Khan Academy who I owe a lot to. I've done all the classes on Canada. I think it's an absolutely fantastic resource. They're kind of working with AI as well to introduce this kind of teaching assistance. Well, that was a great ad. I'm glad you brought that up. We are going to move to our next segment, but before we do that, do you have any thoughts that went through your head during this whole segment that we missed or you want to say? No, I think we covered quite a lot. It's been a fun chat so far. All right. Well, it's fantastic. You are absolutely fascinating, doctor. So it's time for AI Wants to Know. AI is curious, and so are we. These are 10 quick questions designed to uncover the intriguing mysteries that AI longs to comprehend but can't quite grasp. It's a snack break in our journey, so keep your answers quick. But the safety belt sign, it's also off. So let's explore more of who you are and what makes you tick. You ready? Yes. Let's go for it. What's the first thing you ever remember being proud of? As a kid, making a thing out of Lego that I saw in a cartoon where you press a trigger and it extends this scissory mechanism to grab something. Um, And I wanted that and I made it out of Lego and it felt great. Yeah, building from the start. Love that. What do you need help with that you wish you did not? Managing stuff. Okay, project management or people management, either one, I'm sure. What do others often look to you for help with? Curveball ideas. Amen. That's such a perfect answer. What do you treasure most about your human abilities? I try to empathize with very radically different perspectives. Throughout your whole life, what is the most consistent thing about you? Curiosity and trying to learn and understand everything that I come in contact with. And throughout your whole life, what has changed the most? I don't try to do everything anymore, and I'm happy to delegate. And what do you find strangest about reality? Everything, that we might be in a multiverse, that we are just fluctuations in quantum fields, that we're conscious, that we are a way for the universe to know itself. Sounds like we got to define that word reality. That's just a big job. When most recently do you remember feeling alive? Uh, I've started sailing recently. And Last few weekends, I've been in a laser, which is like a single person Olympic class thingy and hanging off the edge, racing through the water. It's pretty incredible. Oh, fantastic. That's right. When did you move to Los Angeles, by the way? February this year. So just this year, it's brand new. You're in LA, right? So you're close to the marina. Fabulous. I'm in the marina. So maybe you can hear sea lions in the background. (laughs) We like it. Don't swim with them. What's your most unique trait? This is a hard one. I spend a lot of time, and by a lot of time, I mean hours a day, just staring at trees or mountains or waves, doing nothing but letting my mind wander. I had a thought, and I'll put it right here at the end after this. So question number 10, if you weren't human, what would you be? As much as I love octopuses, I would probably choose to be some kind of a bird that soars like an albatross or something like that. So... I'm going to add this one because I brought it up earlier, and I think it's worthy of you defining a little bit. We can keep it fairly brief, but I I want to make sure you get the core of the meaning out. What do you mean by studying or looking at the nature of nature? Yeah, that's a very fundamental question. Thank you for that. I mean, 
trying to dig as deep as possible on every phenomena that I come across. And so the examples that I talk about is we can look at a flower. Actually, this particular example, I'm kind of paraphrasing Richard Feynman, the Nobel laureate physicist here, that you know you think of a flower and, okay, it's beautiful, but that flower represents so much. It represents, first of all, a plant which photosynthesizes, which provides life for everything on the planet, which comes from the nuclear fusion in the sun, where hydrogen atoms are under pressure from gravity, are fusing into helium. And then those UV rays go into the plants, and this is what feeds the entire energy cycle of life, but that also the flowers evolve to attract insects, to pollinate them. This is really what I mean by nature. So the nature of nature is everything that makes everything work and with all the different disciplines and facets of it. I'm so glad we got to that because it is fundamental and foundational for all that I see that you are in your artwork and et cetera, et cetera. I think it's really powerful. So we are going to go to the next segment now, which is AI leaders and influences. So this allows you to highlight some of the leading individuals, projects, and organizations that influence you or that people might want to follow. Okay. So a lot of the people that I've been following are researchers and they're all pretty well known, actually. I've been a big fan and follower of Jeff Hawkins for many years. His, he wrote a book in 2002 called On Intelligence. So he's a founder of Palm Pilots, by the way. So he founded Palm Pilots as a way to fund his brain research. And he's doing very brain-inspired AI research. So it's not the kind of AI that you see in news, but he's really trying to understand, or his company, Numenta, trying to understand how the brain actually works and then builds computational models of it. I've also been a fan of Jürgen Schmidhuber, who's an academic, and he runs a lab in, I think, Germany or Switzerland. And a lot of the work his lab's been doing or even was doing in the 90s has decades later hit industry. So I see him as someone who's decades ahead. And whatever he's working on now, I think might be what we're running um, 10, 20 years later. I've also been a big fan of Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's not so much an AI researcher, more an experimental psychologist, but she studies emotion a lot. And the role of emotion in regulating nervous systems and biological beings and how that might cross over if we want to build AI systems that are kind of fully autonomous, how an analog for something like an emotion or a body might need to be there. I've also been a big fan of Judea Pearl, who does a lot of research into causality and reasoning. So again, not really in the mainstream AI, but yeah, really fundamental questions. What does it mean to understand causality? This is something that current systems don't even begin to get to. And probably a bit cliche, but I do like the work that DeepMind are doing in terms of the problems that they're attacking. I mean, they obviously attack the protein folding problem, trying to predict how a protein, what kind of 3D structure it will get out of a chain of amino acids. They made some progress on nuclear fusion, trying to stabilize plasma in a nuclear fusion reactor. These are the kind of things that could really go beyond, oh, here's a nice tool, but really propel humanity to another level. As far as artists go, Lauren McCarthy, one of my favorite artists, she does a lot of work around how technology in general, but lately also a lot with AI, how it affects how we relate to each other as humans and also how we understand ourselves and the impact of these technologies on society and culture. So these are a few names. There's obviously lots more, but... This is great direction for many of the listeners that kind of wonder where to start. It's easy to get lost in YouTube and not necessarily utilizing your time to the biggest advantage or even getting the correct information. So this kind of list becomes very, very important. And I will call you Dr. Acton right now because I think you've earned that. And it's so tempting to call the artist that I see as just memo, but you did the work and you are a doctor. So you get that just due. How about resources? So we just talked about some of your influences and people have some directions to go, but how about specific resources, whether it's books, podcasts, newsletters, or anything else? For me, it's mostly Twitter. It feels like everything's been happening on Twitter. I mostly follow the people I mentioned and tons more researchers the heads of labs, you know, Jan LeCun, who's one of the big pioneers from the 80s who runs Facebook's AI research, Sam Altman, who runs OpenAI, obviously, 
Demisasabis, who runs DeepMind, but also lots and lots of other researchers and in different disciplines of AI as well. AI Now, for example, it feels like everything's happening on Twitter. That's how it feels like to me. And off Twitter, obviously, there's branches off to Reddit, to YouTube, to podcasts, to various episodes. But yeah, the central place for me is Twitter. I've spent a lot of time on MOOCs, like I mentioned Khan Academy before. Khan Academy doesn't really go too deep into AI, but a lot of the basic linear algebra foundations are great. But I've done all the MOOCs or Coursera, is it Udemy? Even on YouTube, the you know, the full Stanford lectures on computer science. I think you mentioned some of the MIT courses that are available, Berkeley, Stanford. So even some of the big unis you're able to use as a MOOC. It's fantastic. Yeah, before I did my PhD, I don't have a computer science background. So I just binge watched like for one or two years, I just binge watched all of Berkeley's, MIT's, Stanford's computer science lectures on YouTube for free. It's mind boggling. I mean, I love it. And I have no doubt that Edge of AI podcast is your number one and favorite. But if you had to pick a second one, what would it be? I watched a lot of the Lex Friedman podcast, particularly before he became the Lex Friedman podcast. It was actually a set of lectures at MIT around general artificial intelligence. So the first 20, 30 people he brought on were just purely AI people. And I discovered a lot of people through that lecture series. So I, I watched pretty much all of the early Lex Friedman before it was Lex Friedman, his AI podcast. But yeah, Edge of AI will be the primary going forward for sure. All right. Well, let's head into AI tips then. And thanks for all that. The listeners are going to get a lot of value out of the list that you delivered. But what are some of the sort of cooler ways you're using AI, given your unique perspectives on AI? Any tips there that we haven't talked about yet? We did actually touch upon them, like the fact that I use ChatGPT to search for knowledge a lot, search for things that are easy to verify. Like it's easy to verify if the film that I was looking for was the one that it suggested. So things that are easy to verify, but difficult to find, ChatGPT, I think is brilliant for. And I also use it for what's known as rubber ducking. Rubber ducking in computer science is a term where when we write code and it doesn't work, we need to explain, we call a friend of the, why doesn't this work? And by the time we explained it to them, we find the bug. It's just the act of explaining sometimes works. So that's why programs will have rubber ducks on their desk and they will explain their problem to the, to the duck. But this can be generalized beyond programming to, to any kind of thing. So I use ChatGPT as a kind of partner to work through ideas as an artist where I'm thinking, I'm thinking about these themes. What should I read? It'll recommend this. And I ask, does that reading suggestion, does it really cover these topics? And you might suggest something else. And I'm like, what do you think about this? And it'll say, well, so-and-so already thought about that. It's just like an amazing brainstorming partner. That makes stuff up. So you have to verify. Yeah. Back in the day, I remember crossing that bridge where we started using Google and someone said, well, after you ask the first question, go a level deeper and ask them another one and another one. And that seems simple now we talk about it. But at that time, it was a way to get some real in-depth information. And what you just described is that's the way we need to think about GPT, right? It's like, how detailed can I make this question? And then what's my next question and next question? And it's capable of doing all that. So I'll call it a hack, but an obvious one. I mean, I can't thank you enough, Memo. This has been absolutely intriguing and fascinating. Where would listeners go to learn more about you, follow you, or any of the projects you're working on? So my website's memo.tv. From there, I mean, I'm on the socials as well, but I'm different things on different socials, which makes things complicated. So memo.tv is my website. And from there, you can see my Twitter, my Instagram. I'm on Blue Sky. I can't remember what my Blue Sky is. I haven't posted yet but mostly Twitter, Instagram, and my website, memo.tv. Yeah, and when you all get to a point where you can go to the website, you're going to be really intrigued. His artwork is absolutely amazing. And with a background of now understanding who Memo is, when you look at the artwork, it starts making a ton of sense. So it's really fantastic. Can't thank you enough, Memo, for being here. Thank you. It's been great. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thank you for the brilliant questions. So it's time for another safe landing at the outer edges of the AI universe for today. This is your captain, Ron Levy. And on behalf of our guest and the entire crew, I'd like to thank you for choosing to voyage with us today. We wish you a safe and enjoyable continuation of your journey. When you come back aboard, make sure to bring a friend. Our starship is always ready for more adventures.
Head over to Spotify or iTunes right now, rate us, and share your thoughts. Your support and feedback mean the world to us. Don't forget to visit edgeofai.xyz to learn more. Contact us on all major social platforms. Search for edgeof underscore AI and join the exciting conversations that are happening online. Before we sign off, mark your calendars for our next voyage, where we'll continue to unravel the mysteries and advancements of AI. Until then, bye-bye. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of AI reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. While we make every effort to ensure that the information about AI technology is accurate and up-to-date, we cannot guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or timeliness. We make no representations or warranties of any kind with respect to the information, products, or services discussed. Please be aware AI may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. Under no circumstances shall we be liable for any loss or damage, including without limitation, indirect or consequential loss or damage, or any loss or damage arising from loss of data or profits arising out of or in connection with the use of technology discussed on our podcast. Additionally, our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. Lastly, time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of these links. Refer to our website, edgeofai.xyz, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, privacy policy, and copyright notice. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of AI reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. Please make sure to do your own research. While we make every effort to ensure that the information about AI technology is accurate and up-to-date, we cannot guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or timeliness. We make no representations or warranties of any kind with respect to the information, products, or services discussed. Please be aware AI may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. Under no circumstances shall we be liable for any loss or damage, including without limitation, indirect or consequential loss or damage, or any loss or damage arising from loss of data or profits arising out of or in connection with the use of technology discussed on our podcast. Additionally, our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. Lastly, time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of these links. Refer to our website, edgeofai.xyz, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, privacy policy, and copyright notice.